welcome to our verse-by-verse -verse journey through Matthew, the first book of the New Testament. The Gospel of Matthew serves as a bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. In this Gospel, Matthew seeks to prove to the Jews that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. For those of us who aren't Jews, Matthew helps us to see our Savior King more clearly and through his gospel, learn to live well in his, in Christ's kingdom today. So grab a cup of coffee, open your Bible to the gospel of Matthew, and let's learn about our Savior King and his kingdom. Matthew chapter 17, as we continue our study through the first gospel, a series I've entitled The Savior King and His Kingdom. And we're going to come to a text today that's pretty familiar and pretty unusual in some respects, but we'll get into it and see what the Lord will speak to us about. But before we do that, let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come and we lift this day up to you, and as David has already said and prayed and others have said, Lord, uh, whatever we bring this morning, Lord, we know, Lord God, that you're in the midst of it, uh, whether good or bad, easy or hard, um, painful or pain-free, um, yeah, whatever the, whatever the issues of our life are, Lord, we know that you're in the center of it. And if we can just trust you in that moment, in that storm, in that time, whatever it might be, up or down, that we know, Lord God, that that good is going to come and that good is going to be um, uh, real good. And we praise you for that. And as we open up your word, we're asking, Lord, that you'd open our hearts, you'd open our ears, you'd open our eyes, and that, Lord, that we would know you better through this time in your word. And we lift it up to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. I grew up believing that Santa Claus was real. And that I'd better be good, otherwise I was getting a lump of coal in my stocking. And there was more than one Christmas that I probably deserved a lump of coal. I did eventually grow out of that belief, out of that childish belief. Somebody say, praise the Lord. <laughs> I didn't grow up with any belief about Jesus. He was not a part of my life. It was not a part of my upbringing. It just wasn't anything that, that really was, I was exposed to as I was growing up. And it wasn't really until I met Kelly that I gave him really any thought at all. But even then, I didn't think that much of him. He was a religious figure in a religious system that I didn't believe in and wanted no part of. I didn't know who Jesus was, but he knew me. And there came a day, a day when, when it was the right time that he helped me to know him. And since then, I've been getting to know him better and better, and the better I get to know him, the better my life becomes. Now, it's not always easy. Somebody say, yep, I get that. Not always easy, but it's better. And I know it's better. Today we're going to get a special glimpse of who Jesus is. And we've been, as I've been trying to share as we go through this series, through this gospel, 
Really, this is what it's about. It's about us getting to know Jesus better, be able to, to, if we can, imagine him in our minds and see him more clearly to, so that he becomes more and more real in our life. Because the more real he becomes, the more influence he has upon us, or the more influence he has upon us, the more Christ-like we become and the better our life is, the better our life is manifested out into the world, the more people see Jesus in our lives. So we want to see him. And we're going to talk about today, about in a, in a, an account of when three of the disciples saw Jesus in a way that no one else did. We'll pick it up. Chapter 17, verse 1. It says, Now after six days, six days from the previous account, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as the light. Now, we know this event. We call this event. We, we have this thing in, we do in the, in the church and in Bible study where we label things, and so we've labeled this thing the transfiguration. It's time when Jesus appeared to these three disciples in a way that he didn't appear to anyone else at any other time. And so this is the only place this happened, and Peter, James, and John were the only ones that saw it. This is his glory shining out. And unfiltered, unrestrained, so much so that it just blew. I mean, he says his face shined like the sun. It's like... The three disciples are looking into the sun in that moment. It would have overwhelmed them. And it did overwhelm them. His divine nature shining forth in all its brilliance. Yeah, I don't know about you, but as I read things like this, I'm thinking like, man, I want to see that. I want to be the, I wish I could be the one that got to experience some of these things. Now, there's other things I think like, okay, Stephen Stoning, okay, good for you, Stephen. You, I'll, stay, I'll stay on this side of, the, of that account. But some of these things, I, I, want to, I want to be there. I want to see it. John, one of the witnesses here, would write of this later on. In John 1.14, he said this, And the word became flesh, and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, we being Peter, James, and John, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John beheld his glory. And this event is very likely what Jesus is referring to in the previous chapter. The end of the previous chapter, he said this in verses 27 and 28. For the Son of Man, speaking of himself, will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. He's speaking of a future return. But then he says, Assuredly, I say to you that there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. That he was, that's very likely what Jesus is referring to was this event. That when he was saying that, hey, I'm going to come back in all my glory and the whole world's going to see it. But there's some of you standing here today, Peter, James, John, or, that will see, will get a glimpse of it. Very likely what he's referring to right here. This is the King of Kings in all of his glory. This is the king of kings that we will see when we go to be with him. 
Peter would also write of this account. And he says in 2 Peter 1.16, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We saw the King of Kings in all of his glory. Santa Claus is a fable. Jesus is real. Peter, James, and John see this amazing display of Christ's glory, his radiance, his majesty, his, his true divine nature. And then suddenly he's not alone. Verse 3. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him. Moses and Elijah, two key characters in the Old Testament. And between the two of them, they represent the whole of the Old Testament. Moses represents the law, <clears throat> and Elijah represents the prophets. So between the two of them, they represent all of the Old Testament. Moses had died about 1,500 years prior to this happening, and Elijah <clears throat> was taken up to heaven in a fiery chariot 900 years before this happened. And here they are, standing with Jesus on this Mount of Transfiguration. You know, one of those fascinating things, so many of these accounts, you wish, you know what, I wish I had, I wish I could ask them, I wish I could interview them about some of these things, right? What did, what did that look like? How did the disciples know it was Moses and Elijah? They hadn't seen any videos. YouTube wasn't quite out yet. It would be, you know, a, a, a minute or two before, you know, they could see these, you know, videos of things. There, there was no pictures of them. There was not a thing. So how did they know who they were? Name tags. Name tags. <laughs> <sighs> that would be the peanut gallery. <laughs> okay, all right. My, my brain just went off in another direction. We're going to stop there. Luke adds some, a couple of details to this account that are important. In Luke 9, 29 to 30 says this, And he prayed, he, Christ prayed, the appearance of his face was altered, and his robe became white and glistening, meaning he was transfigured. And behold, two men talked with him, who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory, so they're also in a glorified state, and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So the very first thing is we recognize the account that, that we don't see in Matthew is that Jesus prayed. So he's up on this mount to pray. Very common, very ordinary behavior for Jesus. And then this, this, this radical thing happens. And the second thing we learned from this account is that while he was there, Moses and Elijah talked to him about his decease. We, we don't usually use that word like that. He was going to die. They're talking about his upcoming death in Jerusalem. Again, I wish I knew more about that conversation. But they were talking about it. Jesus knew what was happening. They knew what happened. They had come from wherever they came in glory. They had come to talk to Jesus about what was coming. As seems to be his pattern, Peter speaks without thinking. I'm thankful that I don't have any of those kind of people around me.
Verse 5. While he was still speaking, <laughs> name tags, <laughs> behold, <laughs> behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. Mankind has rejected, despised, mocked, minimized, denied Christ for 2,000 years. They're doing it today. They did it, they did it 2,000 years ago. They're doing it today, and it's not going to change until he comes back again as the King of kings and Lord of lords. That just, that's just the reality of this world that we're living in. Today, some consider him to be fiction, like Santa Claus. He's no different than Santa Claus. He's, all, he's made up. Men made him up. <clears throat> Others claim that he's nothing more than a, a good teacher or a prophet or some such thing. Well, God says, he is my son, and I'm well pleased in him. Let me ask you a question. If your idea of who Jesus is is different than God's proclamation of who he is, who's wrong? If, if there's a difference between what God says and what you believe, one of the two of you is wrong. Who might it be? Raise your hand. It could be you. It could be you. Hear him, he says. God speaks from heaven. And in this, in this gospel, you only have two of those accounts where God speaks from heaven, and they both say almost the exact same thing. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. In this account, he adds, hear him or listen to him, heed him. It says, and then the disciples lift their eyes, and what do they see? Just Jesus. There's a huge message in that. We ought to listen. Who should we listen to? Jesus. Who else? No one. No one. Someone isn't telling us about Jesus. They aren't leading us to Jesus. They aren't encouraging us toward Jesus. We have to be very careful about what we receive from them. God will send men and women into our lives. He'll send men and women into this world with his message. And we got to be very careful because other people are going to come into the world too with their own message. And they're going to try to make it sound like it's God's message. And it's not. Not. It's meant to distract. It's meant to mislead. It's meant to deceive. Now, the ones that come from God, we should respect them. We should listen to them. That's why God sent them. But only as they lead us to a deeper understanding and affection and obedience to Christ. If they're not leading us to Christ, we ought to be very skeptical of them and maybe even Stay away from them. So here we have the scene. Peter, James, and John, I wonder what they're thinking as they're climbing up this mountain with Jesus, and then he prays. He, pray, he prays a lot. Okay, you know, that's, that's nothing new for the disciples. He prays, and poof, there he is, all of his glory, and then all of his Moses and Elijah, and they're freaking out, and Peter says, oh, we ought we to do something here. We ought we to build some tabernacles here. 
In verse 7 it says, But Jesus came and touched them. As, as the, the voice comes from heaven, and they're, and they're terrified, they fall on their faces. Jesus comes, and he says, He came and touched them. And rise, and do not be afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. By wanting to build these three tabernacles, we need to see this. What Peter was saying is that he wanted, okay, this is a big deal. This is a big deal, the glorified Christ. And, oh yeah, Moses and Elijah, they're important too. And so we should build these three tabernacles so that, you know, you have a place to stay and other people can come and see you. But there's a, there were so many things wrong with this that God says, uh, hold on, interrupts Peter. Right in the middle of his, you know, his, his, uh, his decision to try to establish, who knows what he was trying to establish there. But what he was doing by wanting to build these three tabernacles, what Peter unthinkingly was doing was making Jesus equal with Moses and Elijah. Putting them all on the same level. And God says, oh, no, 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 you won't. Moses and Elijah are important. They're important in God's plan. <clears throat> but Jesus is infinitely more important than the two of them. This really is a problem that the Jewish religious leaders were having at the time, and, and some still have today, that putting Jesus in his right place above Moses and Elijah, they put the, the law and the prophets at such a high level that they, to the point where they, they will make them equal in many ways with God. And it's wrong. Most of Elijah had done their job. They'd come, they'd done what God assigned them to do, and they were done. And most of Elijah, they, they, as I said, they represent the whole Old Testament. And for centuries, the Jews had looked to them for instruction, for, for guidance, for courage, for, for you know, learning how to be holy and be right with God. They had looked to them for that. But now, once Jesus arrived, they said, Look to Jesus. And the same is true for us. We must never forget this. And, you know, as long as you're around here, we're probably going to keep saying the same thing. It's Jesus first, last, and only. There is nothing else. If we're saying anything else, we're, we're promoting anything else, we're pushing anything else, we're on the wrong track. And even as we read and study the Old Testament, which we do, we are, Tuesday morning we're studying the book of Isaiah, which is radical because it points to Jesus all the time. We do it so that we can see Jesus more clearly. We want to see Jesus more. And you can see Jesus, I've said, I've said it, you can see Jesus on every page of your Bible if you're looking for him. Every page. And you ought to be looking for him on every page. Here they are. They've had this glorious moment. Peter makes his, you know, his goof and says something he shouldn't say. God corrects him. Jesus encourages them, lifts them up. Okay, this moment is past. It's time to go back down the hill. Verse 9. Now as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them saying, tell the vision to no one 
until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Jesus answered and said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has come already, and they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is about to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. I can imagine Peter, as they're going down the hill, saying something like, I can't wait to tell Thomas about this. He won't believe it. <laughs> oh, good. I was hoping a couple people would get that. <laughs> Jesus tells them, no, don't tell anyone, not even the other disciples. He says, you can't tell them this part of the story until the other part of the story is done. There's another part that must come before that part. They won't understand this. This won't make sense to them. They, they won't be able to get what that was until this other thing happens. Seeing Jesus in his glorified state without understanding what it meant through what was coming next wasn't going to make any sense. It wouldn't truly make sense until his resurrection. And for his resurrection had to happen what had to happen first. He had to go to the cross. The gospel is not just about the glory of heaven. For many of us, it's the part we like the most, right? I like the idea of going to heaven. But it's also about the cross of the atonement for our sin. No one's going to experience the glory of heaven until they've stood at the foot of the cross and had their sins forgiven. You can't go to heaven until you've done that. And to do that, you must put your trust in Christ who died for their sins. It's interesting. We, we, we look at this and we say, well, why did, why did they ask the question about Elijah? The answer is found at the end of the Old Testament in Malachi 4, 5 and 6 says this, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest they come and strike the earth with a curse. The scribes have been teaching and taught rightfully that Elijah was going to come and he was going to make a way, he was going to make the way for the Messiah. So before the Messiah would come, Elijah would appear first. He would be the primary sign of the coming of the Messiah. And the, and, and the disciples are saying, okay, well, wait a minute. We just saw Elijah, right? He just appeared. But he didn't do anything. And he's gone now. How does that, how does that fit together? They're, they're already seeing that, okay, Jesus, okay, he's the Messiah, but how is it that that, that prophecy regarding Elijah, it, it just it wasn't fitting for them? And so Jesus tells them, yeah, he, he has come already. 
speaking of John the Baptist. John the Baptist wasn't Elijah resurrected. He came in the spirit and, and, and tone and teaching of Elijah. He was a prophet like Elijah. If you, can, if you compare Elijah and John the Baptist, there's so many similarities between them. You can just like, okay, I get it now. The religious establishment saw John and they rejected him. And then, and then wicked Herod had him beheaded. And Jesus says here that the very same things that happened there, that, that, that likewise the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands, that it, it, he is about to start that, that journey down to Jerusalem where the religious establishment will reject him and wicked Pilate will have him crucified. Same series of events, similar events. And within this account, we see a paradox. Jesus up on this high mountain where he's glorified, and we see him standing, you know, between these two great, glorious men of the past, Moses and Elijah. And then he tells the disciples, eh, don't, don't think about that right now. I have a different destination, a lowly hill where I will stand between two criminals on a cross. The glory is coming, but not until he's kept his appointment on the cross. Now, most normal people resist the idea of suffering. If you enjoy suffering, you need help. Because <laughs> suffering, nobody wants to suffer. You know, we're told we ought to endure it, we ought to, you know, power through it, whatever it is that we have to do, but we don't enjoy the idea of it. And we would resist it if we could. And even as Christ followers, there's a part of us that thinks, and there are actually some churches that even try to teach this false doctrine, that if you have enough faith, you're not going to experience suffering. I got news for you. They're wrong. Suffering is a part of living in a sin-wrecked world. We're living in a world that has been just devastated by sin. There is not possible to go through this life without being touched by suffering. You may not experience it personally, but it's going to be around you, and it's going to, it's going to touch your life. You will know it. John 16, 33, Jesus even, if you will, promised it. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, he says. I have overcome the world. Yes, there are many times in this world where it's going to be tough, miserable tough, unbearably tough. But Jesus says, be of good cheer. And, and, and then the Apostle Paul tells us to not allow the reality of suffering and tribulation and hardships and all these different things to discourage us. In 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18, he says there, therefore do not lose heart, kind of the same idea of, of be of good cheer, even though our outward man is perishing, this human fleshly part of us is, is perishing, and the older I get, the more perishing I feel. Yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. I love that. For our light affliction, light affliction, your suffering, no matter how bad it is, 
is a light affliction, which is, for, is but for a moment compared to eternity, a lifetime of suffering is but a moment. But a moment is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory while we do not look at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Glory is the future promise, is the future reality, is the future hope of all Christ followers. We, we know that one of the realities of following Christ is glory. We're going to spend all of eternity in the glory of heaven. We're going to know glory. We're going to be glorious ourselves, whatever that means. That's the reality of our lives. But that glory, that future glory, may include a life in this temporal reality that is touched by suffering. Christ suffered. Do we, do we acknowledge that? We say Christ suffered. We know that. We, we need to remember why he suffered. He suffered for us. We were talking, I think it was on Tuesday at the Bible study. Maybe it was the Saturday before. I don't remember. They're getting all mixed together. We're talking about the Garden of Gethsemane where Christ was in the garden and he was recognizing that and he was praying and talking to God about this cup that he, he wanted to pass from him. That cup was the wrath of God that was going to be poured out on him. The wrath of God that was filled with our sin. That, that, that he, he, it was so disgusting and so just everything about it revolted him. He wanted it to pass from him, but he recognized, says, but not my will. I got to, Jesus knew that when, when he went to the cross, that cup was going to be poured out on him and the wrath of God was going to fall on him. His sinless life. He suffered on our behalf. We should be willing to suffer a little bit in this life because nothing we suffer in this life will even remotely approach what he suffered on our behalf doesn't mean you have to enjoy it, okay? No laughing your way through suffering. You can try that. It's weird, but you can try it. Jesus said something similar. He said in Matthew 16, 24 and 25, then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whatever loses his life for my sake will find it. The reality is, is that, that, you know, we don't, suffering is going to be a part of the reality that we're living. Now, I pray that you don't have to go through very much of it, but the reality is we're going to, we are going to. Glory is coming, but probably not today. Glory is coming, but it may may include some difficult things along the way. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to do communion. And as we prepare ourselves for that, let's, let's remind ourselves of the glory that's coming. 
Let's remind ourselves that, that a glorious day is coming, and we should rejoice in that. We should look forward to that. We should hope in that. But along the way, there could be some bumps. There could be some turns. There could be some difficulties. There could be some, some hardships. But we're headed to glory. Amen? Heavenly Father, we come and we thank you for all that you do for us, all that you have for us, all that you desire for us. And we pray, Lord, that as we take this time, Lord God, we pray, Lord, for an outpouring of your Holy Spirit upon us, that, Lord, whatever situation we're in, whether it be good or bad, whether it be suffering or, or rejoicing, whether it be, you know, uh, plenty or want, whatever it is, Lord God, we know that um, in the end, the end is glory, and it is a glory that is beyond our comprehension. And so, Lord, we just want to thank you, Lord God, that as your people, we always have that hope, and that nothing in this world can, can tarnish it and diminish it and take it away. And so we thank you for that. And I pray, Lord, for whatever state um, that our people may find themselves in this morning, that they would be encouraged by that thought. That no matter what this life brings, the next brings glory. And that we can hold on. We can hold on to this life and that you'll help us through it. And so we thank you for all of that. And as we prepare to partake of communion, I pray, Lord, that you would minister to each of our hearts about what it means. We thank you, Lord, for this day. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we learn more about our Savior King and His Kingdom in the Gospel of Matthew. It is our hope that these messages will help you grow in your faith. If you have any questions or there is anything we can do to help you with that, please do not hesitate to connect with us. Go to calvaryfv.com connect to find all the ways that you can connect with us. As Christians, we are all connected in Christ. One of the ways we would like to engage with you is in the area of prayer. Please let us know how we can be praying for you. Send us an email to prayer at calvaryfv.com or text the word pray to 951-419-5396. If this material has been useful to you, please share it with someone. Also, please pray that God would use these messages to help others find hope in Jesus Christ. You can also partner with us financially by going to calvaryfv.com give or text the word give to 951-419-5396. Until next time, go be radical with Jesus.